So here's the hiring forecast for companies in Boston looking for tech workers. This is the land of the four-year institution, and so you can clap twice and 10 Harvard graduates fall from the sky. That's David Delmar Santias, founder and executive director of Resilient Coders, a Boston-based, 20-week, free, intensive coding boot camp for low-income people of color, designed to help them to access the kinds of well-paying tech jobs that actually provide enough money to live on. Part of David's job is to convince local companies that requiring their coders have college degrees, degrees that are too expensive and out of reach for so many marginalized people, is both classist and racist. And it also deprives those companies of highly trained coders of color. I'm Andrew Wolk, and this is Finding Common Purpose, the show exploring how to build a 21st century social contract, not just for a few, but for everyone. Today, the second part of my conversation with David, recorded before the pandemic and widespread protests about how even the best intention efforts to increase diversity at companies can fail for the potential employee and employer. From the role implicit bias plays to straight up racism, unless companies can truly listen. If you haven't heard the first part of the conversation yet, it's our episode called Taking the Protest to the Office. Be sure to check it out. Something to know about David is he identifies as both Latino and white, and he believes his dual identity gives him access to different kinds of conversations. To some people, I am Latino. To some people, I'm white. And I have made my peace with the fact that those are two different windows into the same house. And so if I'm telling a story on behalf of our coders, and your entry point of engagement with that story is one in which I am Latino, so be it. If your entry point with that story is one in which I'm white, so be it. Those different access points, those different ways of being seen, give David a flexibility that many resilient coders, graduates, especially black graduates, don't have. Even when they're interviewing at a company Resilient Coders is partnered with to help place its graduates, a company that is actively trying to hire people of color. Fictional scenario, let's suppose that an interview goes very well. There's a young black woman who goes in to interview with uh, a couple of white men, right? And it goes well, and she's scheduled for a second interview, and she doesn't show up. She just disappears, right? And the, uh, the company might say, what happened? We were so happy. We really liked her. Like, it was going really well, blah, blah, blah. And then we speak to the young woman and, and ask, well, what's, what's going on here? And she might say, well, I, it's, it's very clear to me that I just don't belong there, right? And so you have to kind of unpack that further. And some of that is her own experience. Some of that is, uh, is the imposter syndrome um, with which she is uh, experiencing this entire episode. Uh, and some of it might have been actual microaggressions that she experienced during that conversation. And while that particular scenario is a fictional one, um, that sort of setup where two different parties in the same meeting coming away with two different takeaways is actually very, very familiar to us. So you go into XYZ company. I mean, I would imagine you're, you're not coming in saying that your company is part of systemically and structurally being racist, right? <laughs> but at the same time, you do to some degree without knowing them specifically feel that way, and you want to get your people jobs. 
Yeah, well, no one, I mean, there's no faster way to shut down a conversation in this country than throw out the big R word. That's going to shut that right down. So in my efforts to engage everybody as though they want to be an ally, at that point, the conversation becomes less about the person and the company as entities and more about the, uh, the behaviors and practices that are maybe antiquated and ill-serving what I assume to be their efforts to build a more inclusive team, right? So if I sit down with somebody from Megacorp LLC, right, and it's all white men, uh, I have to engage in that conversation either assuming (laughs) or sometimes pretending to assume that they want to build an inclusive and diverse team. But I would say that it's also important to turn the fire up a little bit when speaking more broadly about the system and about a particular societal narrative that we have crafted. Um, Because I I do think that our biggest challenge as an organization and as a movement uh, is apathy. You're looking for your window in the conversation to continue to take baby steps of what you can share that gets them listening while you're listening as well. Yeah, exactly. I'm a, so I'm a big history nerd. To me, one of the, the, the continued threads of history and its leaders has been the removal of neutrality, right? If you as a leader are able to remove neutrality and say you are with me or you are against me, uh, that's when you can begin, you can begin to have a conversation. And so when I, when I write stuff or when I say stuff that can be perceived as a little bit inflammatory, uh, that's very much intentional. Um, because we're not having the conversation and the only way to begin having that conversation is to poke and prod and say you're either with me or you're against me but either way we gotta talk I first had the idea to talk to David as part of a blog series I wrote last year exploring the broken handoff from high school to college or a training program, to a good job. And how the failure of that handoff is a major barrier for so many, especially people of color. I told David about a kind of try-before-you-buy approach I'd heard some employers prefer when bringing on new hires from less traditional backgrounds. And I asked him if Resilient Coders offered their partner employers this option. Try-before-you-buy is something that that I understand allows what might seem like a big leap of faith to some companies to make that leap of faith. I get it. And so some of our companies do like a, like a three or four month temp to perm hiring thing right before they hire, to which we say that's fine, but we need to be very, very explicit with what it would look like for that person to be successful so that we're not opening ourselves up to, uh, to bias or to subjective decision making. But it's, it's also worth expressing, quite frankly, a little bit of frustration about the fact that college graduates, white college graduates, are not subjected to the same degree of scrutiny. I do think that white kids from the suburbs are given much more of a pass uh, than folks who don't necessarily uh, fit that particular mold. And the good thing is that thanks to our incredible classroom staff, to our managing director of engineering and the, uh, the teaching staff, uh, try before you buy always works for us. And then of course, companies that have the capacity to hire again come back and they typically hire again from Resilient. So I want to, um, now that we've dug pretty deep into employers, I, I do want to get an opportunity because I'm sure you have plenty to say, even though it's not directly 
who we engage with on the education side. I, I think we can both agree that, you know, that pathway from people graduating high school to move into college or second or some sort of post-secondary training program to a good j paying job is not working that well for the majority of people. Um, so what, what are your thoughts around the education side of this at high school or at colleges? So the, the pipeline is leaking, right? Frankly, the pipeline is leaking. Um, I had a, uh, a teacher once who told me that if you ever watch professional pool players, like billiards players, if you ever watch them play, they're not making wild shots across the table, right? They're not good at making wild shots. They're actually building their way down the table one ball at a time, setting up the next shot with every shot that they take. It's a great analogy. I wish I'd been smart enough when I was 15 <laughs> <laughs> to realize it. And the fact of the matter is that that's really not how our workforce development organizations and a lot of times our schools are, are behaving. Everyone wants to take sort of like a wild shot. Everyone wants to be the organization that takes someone from XYZ circumstance all the way to some spectacular uh, brochure-ready finish, <laughs> right? And what ends up happening is that rather than having a pipeline, I call it I call it a pan's flute instead, right? Rather than having one pipeline, you have a bunch of like small pipe sections stacked on top of each other, where there are about a billion ways to get from here <laughs> to about <laughs> five inches down the road, right? Uh, there are many reasons for this. Uh, I actually think that philanthropy is a part of it. Um, I think that we have a system in philanthropy whereby organizations are rewarded for their metrics. Individual metrics, which is important for sure to have some sort of reward based on metrics. But what ends up happening is that everyone wants to have the big glossy finish with the big glossy metrics. And you can't make as much money, the argument goes, by being very good at handing off your students to another organization, right? It happened to us early on where uh, I had a student who wanted to do year up. And I thought that was great. Uh, and because I don't think I'm a garbage human being, um, I walked him across the street over to year up and um, was really happy when he got into the program. Now, I later spoke to a, uh, a funder, a donor of ours, and I was sharing some of these metrics. And she said to me, why would I fund you why wouldn't I just fund Year Up? I've heard that before by many donors. Yeah, it's, it's, it's madness, right? And so what that does is it incentivizes people to go from like high school to boardroom, right? It's, it's crazy. And that's not how human beings function. And, and so you're not thinking about people first. And you're not thinking about people first. Now, whenever someone wants to start another program like ours, I always suggest to them, you know, rather than, rather than just replicating what's already out there, you know what we need is we need an organization that can do some wraparound supports, that can do some more sort of thorough case management, uh, management around housing practices, um, it, you know, eviction support, displacement support, that kind of thing, uh, English language learning, that sort of thing. And if, if we could bake that degree of collaboration into the way that organizations are compensated, then it becomes sustainable. So right now we have all sorts of relationships with wonderful organizations that do great work, and it's all predicated on the basis of what I call a favor economy. In the nonprofit world, as you well know, um, we all do favors for each other um, because we all want, we all share some sort of vision for what society can and should be, right? And we want XYZ individual to succeed, and so of course we're gonna do some free counseling with them, or of course we're gonna sort of shuttle them into this program. Um, what we should be doing is 
allowing nonprofits, uh, allowing sort of the business case and the mission case to work concurrently. So if your organization, if, you, if what you do as an organization is you teach people to fold clothes at the gap, right? That's cool. You're giving them jobs. Now, you are disincentivized. You are financially disincentivized from approaching your own students and saying, you know what? You should try Resilient Coders, right? Because when that individual leaves your uh, clothes folding program to go learn to code, that is a blemish on your outcomes. Right, right. Right. And so what you have is conflict between me trying to run a sustainable business and me trying to do what's best for our students. And so when we can come up with a system that aligns those two, that's when we'll be able to succeed. So um, it's really interesting when I asked my question, you went to the, the, and I could go on all day to talk about the, the complete dysfunction of the philanthropic and nonprofit relationship, but I do want to get your take, if you have one at all, on the institutional side of this, of the public school system and the, call it the two-year and four-year colleges. Any thoughts about where their role is not working? Yeah, well, they're just not listening to each other at the institutional level, right? I, I had the benefit of, of listening to this lecture by this wonderful um, Harvard researcher named Raman Manjari. Um, and she had this slide, I'll never forget, and it was a, sort of a pie chart with four quadrants, right? And it's uh, employers, employees, educational institutions, government, right? And these are four sort of institutions, if you will, that in my parents' generation spoke to each other, yep. right? The, 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 sort, the social contract that they signed up for was all four of these entities are working together to produce, you know, what we now call sort of like middle income, quote unquote, blue collar jobs, right? And that has completely broken. And those four entities are not speaking to each other. Employees and employers are not speaking to each other. They're certainly not speaking to colleges and high schools. And government is out to lunch, right? Without getting political, yep. there's just, they're just not involved in that equation. Yep. Right now, I have spoken to many very forward-thinking principals and teachers. So there are some principals and teachers that are trying to put together, and have in some cases successfully put together, like career advisory boards, where they are personally engaging with representatives of industry, right, to influence their curriculum. Uh, but that's still happening very much one-on-one, -on -one, and it's not happening at an institutional level. Uh, and so the minute that we're able to sort of wrap those four quadrants back into one, we'll be able to actually place people in the jobs. I want to turn back to this idea that of this 21st century social contract um, that supports mo moving more people along this pathway. In this case, it's high school to post-secondary to a good-paying job. I, I, I'm fascinated by, when we think about the contract, that and the institutions about the role of the individual. Because the only way a contract is really going to work, a social contract, is what role the individual or the citizen um, is going to play in that. And, and I'm just curious, for the age group that you work with, mm -hmm. right, which is a little bit of a difficult one, right, because they're old enough to be an adult by law, Yeah. but they're probably not old enough, depending on a lot of different circumstances, to know how to navigate their way through that pathway. H how you think about the role of the individual. So if the institutions step up, what should they be expecting from the individual to make that contract really work? So the institutions step up, in what sense? Like if colleges start teaching? Yeah, so if those four quadrants work better together or more employers keep coming to the table to allow you to grow, the other half needs to meet them somewhere. I don't know if it's halfway, depending on the age, right? Certainly a, a kindergarten, <laughs> it's probably more the parents, right? But 
if you are able to build the relationship with the institution, you've changed their mindset, you've changed their structural hiring barriers. What's the expectation on the student side in that contract, right? Because that's what makes up the contract. It's your student who then goes to the employer. What are those expectations on that side to make it work? You know, I, I don't think there's much to change, quite frankly. Uh, I think that our students, um, I think many young people of color uh, have often spent their lives uh, contorting themselves into some sort of abstract social ideal, right? Yep. And I don't think they need to do any more contortions. Uh, I think that they should be uh, allowed to be the exceptional people that they are. Uh, and I would like to see the day when institutions and systems change around them uh, to allow them to be their most powerful selves. Yep. And then I would assume, but I don't want to put words in your mouth, and only be held, not be discriminated against because of who they are, but held to the same standards. Held to the same standards. That's exactly right. Uh, I've spoken to a lot of folks who, who have just spent their whole lives playing the game. They wear the right, the, the quote-unquote, the right clothes. They, they speak in quote-unquote the, the right way, right? They wear their hair in a certain way, right? There are all sorts of concessions, if you want to call them that. There are all sorts of, there's all sorts of code switching uh, that takes place um, that I don't think they should be doing any more of. Yeah, that's, that's a great way to end because it's a really interesting question around where the change really has to happen if you want to have this new social contract and, um, and you know, the institutions really just needing to catch up. Right to those that are there and re ready and waiting. Um, David, I, I cannot thank you enough. This has been an awesome conversation. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you very much. I enjoy getting to talk like this. Yeah, well, it's terrific. Have a great day. Thank you. Do the same. You can learn more about Resilient Coders at resilientcoders.org. And you can read about my conversations with David Delmar Santias at andrewwolk.com. Rachel McCarthy produced the show Doug Slaywin with Satellite Sound Recording is our sound designer and engineer. You can find us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you enjoyed what you heard, be sure to hit subscribe and also leave a review. It's the best way to make sure other listeners can find us. Thanks for listening to Finding Common Purpose.